please be advised that the content in the Grave Tales podcast series is suitable for adults only. You're with Chris Adams and Helen Goltz for the Grave Tales, the series podcast. Today, from the Grave Tales True Crime Volume 1 book, The Great Bookie Robbery. It was the perfect crime. Well planned, well executed, and $15 million the prize bounty to share. No one was killed in the heist, but when the robbing was over, the killing began. Yes, a kind of mysterious setup for that event on the 21st of April 1976 that became known as the Great Bookie Robbery. It sounds very Agatha Christie, doesn't it? Yeah, and it kind of was. The start of it even was. I mean, it was a normal day at 131 Queen Street in Melbourne where the Victorian Club was located. The Victorian Club was a place that's a bit like the Tats Clubs now. It was originally set up for bookies to exchange monies after a big race meeting. So they would arrive after a big race meeting flushed. Well, they didn't. They arrived to meet with their other colleagues, their other bookmakers, and then the money would be bought in ah. uh, and then settled. Right. Uh, it was settling day for the bookies. So this was the first Wednesday after the Easter of 1976. It had been a big Easter. They'd been racing at two clubs in Melbourne over the Easter period. And so there was a lot of money to change hands. And clearly the people who set up the great bookery robbery knew that. Mm. So on the Wednesday morning, the first thing that happened was a bloke in overalls bounded up the steps of 131 Queen Street and into the Victorian Club and said, I've been sent to fix your fridge that's broken. I'm not sure whether the staff there quite knew which fridge was not working properly, but they sent the bloke who turned out to be Laurie Prendergast, who will feature in this story a little later, behind the fridges to see if he could find which one wasn't working. Uh, Laurie messed around in there for a while and until he was sure that the money had arrived on the premises, there was some activity when the armoured car arrived with the money in it. It was bought inside and put into the cash cage. And at that point, Laurie ceased to be fridge mechanic and became armed robber. Weren't we wonderfully naive in the 1970s that we would let this guy in, dressed in his overalls, to fix a fridge in a place where clearly there's a whole stack of money coming fairly soon, but no one checked his ID or credentials or whatever, just set him around the building to check the fridges. Yeah, and of course, as soon as he had the opportunity, he pulled out a shotgun and told everybody in the room to remain still, not to speak. No one spoke, as you might imagine. But step us back, what's the cash cage? What's that? Cash cage was a place within the building which was just like a small room that had a grill, a metal grill over the front of it with a small area that things could be passed through. And so the money was taken into the cash room and the settling was done sort of at the little counter at the front of it. As soon as Laurie broke out from behind the fridges with his shotgun, he went over and allowed another five men into the building through what everybody thought was a secure door. It was supposed to be secure. No one was supposed to be able to get through there and yet Laurie allowed five more blokes dressed in dust coats and balaclavas, also very, very heavily armed with automatic weapons, into the settling room. Wow, okay, so we'll go back later and look at the setup and all the craftiness that went on to set this day up. But tell us now what happened. So he's pulled the gun, he's let the five guys in through the door that was supposed to be secure. So there were six of them all together now right. in the place. They grabbed the money, stuffed it into 118 white Caligo bags, okay. uh, which they then proceeded to transport downstairs to the front of the building. The amount of money that was involved required a fair bit of shifting. And let's talk a bit about the amount of money and how much was there. The book Bookies and the club wanted it to be known that $1.3 million was taken. Now, this is the 1970s. That's a hell of a lot of money. 1976. You were doing very well if you were taken home anywhere near that a year. Wow, yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> probably only bank bosses were. Because what's a house in 1970s up? 20,000? Oh, yeah, depending on which city you're in. Yeah. But certainly, you know, that would be a ballpark figure in lots of cities. Okay, so you can tell it's a hell of a lot of money. So that was what they wanted it to be known as because I suspect that one of the reasons they wanted it minimised was because in those days the bookies paid a turnover tax. They had to pay a tax on the amount of money that they turned over. Right. Uh, from each meeting. So the lower for them, the better. Plus, I think there was just a general feeling that the bookies didn't want people to know how much they were making. The other end of the scale, based on the two days racing at Caulfield and Mooney Valley, the number of people that were there, a lot of people estimated, book, blokes who would know, estimated that it may have been as high as $15 million Wow. that was taken. Okay, so while all this is going on, you've got this hostage situation upstairs where people are being held up Money's been taken downstairs in bags by these guys in overalls or jackets and balaclavas or whatnot. Mm. Is that correct? Dust coats they were wearing, like the blokes who used to, you know, do the gates at the footy used to wear. Everybody knew what a dust coat was. And balaclavas so you couldn't recognise them. They held up all the bookies who were there for their settling day, all the staff in the place uh, with machine gun type weapons Mm. while this was going on. So a couple were holding them hostage. The others were making sure the money was leaving the building. So they watched it go out downstairs on the street. Witnesses later reported they saw the money being put into the back of a van. And after 11 minutes, and that's all it took, 11 minutes to get all that money out downstairs and in the van, it took off. It's a slick operation. It was brilliantly planned. Mm. The bloke behind it was a fellow called Raymond Bennett, or Chuck, as his nickname was. He was a bloke with a long history with the Painters and Dockers Union, uh, not the nicest blokes you'd ever run into. Yeah, but I remember them from the Juanita Nielsen story around that same era. Exactly right. Involved in lots of gangland activity. Mm. Ray Bennett's specialty, if you like, was ghosting. That's where someone provides evidence of an income for someone else that didn't actually happen. In other words, the union is saying, this bloke worked for us and that's why he's got that money, which may have come from illegal operations, mm. from a robbery or whatever. Yeah, that's handy, isn't it? Yeah, so Ray Bennett's job within the union, if you like, was to do that. He had been overseas in London. He was a criminal in that part of the world as well. He was offered a job, if that's the right word for it, with the London-based Australian gang they called the Kangaroo Gang. Mm -hmm. He didn't. He got caught and ended up in jail in London and they say that's where he planned this robbery. And who was his cohorts on the day? Okay, the others who were there, also well-known crims around town, a bloke called Les Kane, who, again, very strong ties with the painters and dockers. He had a brother with him too. He did, his brother Brian. Mm. Now, Brian ran a small-time protection racket around the illegal gambling clubs in Carlton and Brunswick, that part of the world. So he was involved in it. So brothers in crime, a bit like the craze, but not quite. Yeah, sort of a bit like the craze. Mm. A difference in the way it all ended up, I'll tell you about in a minute. There was also a fellow called Norman Lee whose nickname was Chops not quite sure where Chops came from his family owned a dim sim factory you know the old dim sims that you, yeah, you eat. Yeah, he doesn't like a steamed dim sim. <laughs> <laughs> Not fried, steamed. Yeah. A bloke called Ian Carroll. You'd remember the name Mad Dog Cox, who was a, a notorious mm. criminal yep. in Victoria in the 70s. He later shot Ian Carroll to death uh, down at an area called Mount Martha, Victoria. It's a rough old gang, isn't it? It gets rougher. And, of course, Laurie Prendergast, who we've yes. already spoken about, the man who got in disguised to as the... the um, yeah as the fridge mechanic. So by the time the police came, they'd got away and nobody was hurt? No. That's the remarkable bit about it. When you look at the background of these blokes who were involved, their tendency to violence, which again comes to the fore in what happened after this robbery, it's just amazing. It took 11 minutes. They got 118 bags out downstairs 
into the van, gone, was the public perception of what had happened here. I think the only bloke probably who was threatened was the one guy who Laurie pointed the shotgun at when he was making his threat that if they moved, he'd shoot. Mm. But apart from that, no, no injuries at all. Mm, okay. So they've just pulled off one of the biggest robberies in Australia? Yeah, probably if it was the full $15 million that was taken, it would probably still be the biggest cash robbery in Australian history. So what happened now? Okay, mm. so uh, two things happened. The first one is, of course, the coppers are on the job trying to find out where the money's gone and it has fair income just disappeared. disappeared. Not a sign of it anywhere. Last seen disappearing with some blokes in dust coats and mm. balaclavas in a van up Queen Street. Gone. And unidentifiable because they all had the balaclavas on except for the fridge mechanic, so to speak. Yeah. He was the only one who would have been directly recognisable by anybody in the building. It left all those questions for the coppers about um, how did they get in? How did they get through that secure door? Why were they just able to open that? Where did the money go? Where did the weapons come from? All these questions were left for the police to deal with. And if they have an insider and who's working with them, if that's the case? Well, it becomes very interesting as to how some of the answers to all those questions come later in this saga, which we'll get to. The other thing that happened was that Ray Bennett, you would think, having pulled off a robbery like this would never have to worry about money again. No, he's home and hose. Yeah, but that wasn't the case. To think that that was the case would be to severely misunderstand the nature of the Melbourne underworld. He was watching his back for the whole time. I mean, every small-time crim and some big-time crims and a whole lot of bent coppers in Melbourne at that time probably thought that they had a right to some of that money. And what was happening was that within the gang who pulled off the heist, there was tension over who should have got what, who did got what, and who Ray Bennett should be giving some more money to. This works on the assumption that in that underground world, people knew who did the job. Oh, yeah. Yeah, without a doubt. And even the bent cops might have known who did the job. Yeah, but they're saying nothing. Of course. So when you say who got what, etc., clearly it wasn't an equal divide. Probably not. And I mean, I would imagine that Ray Bennett, having organised the whole thing, would think that he was entitled to the lion's share, if you like, and the others were along for the ride and they got what he gave them. So he spent most of his life looking over his shoulder. And of course, the risk with that is there were so many involved that your risk is increased, isn't it? Yeah. And they were not particularly nice people that were involved. Oh, that's not nice, Christopher. <laughs> I'm sure their mothers loved them. So Ray Bennett got sick of looking over his shoulder the whole time and decided to take matters into his own hands. He turned up with two other blokes, a fellow called Vince Mickelson and Laurie Prendergast, who we mm. know already. Was a fridge mechanic actor. Exactly right. At the home of one of the Kane brothers, Les Kane, who was out with his family. They were out when these three blokes arrived at their house. They waited until they got home. They locked the family in the lounge room and they took Les into the bathroom and shot him to death. Good God. They then dragged him out in front of his family and put him in the boot of his car of Les's car. Now, Les had a very noticeable car, if you like. It was a pink Ford Futura. I don't know whether you remember them. They were kind of a sloped-back no. Ford that was made in the 70s. No, it had me at pink, though. Yeah, and it was very unusual um, for a bloke like Les. The car and Les disappeared, never seen again. Those three blokes were charged with his murder but got off uh, essentially because there was no body. And no evidence yeah. such other than the family who were probably too scared to say anything anyway. Yeah. So by this time, Brian Kane is well and truly aware of who killed his brother. But he decided that the one he would kill first was Ray Bennett the guy who was the leader of the whole thing. Now, Bennett got picked up for his part in a small-time bank robbery in Footscray, Melbourne suburb. He decided not to take bail. He figured he was safer in the police cells than he was Mm -hmm. on the streets at that time. He was being walked from the cells to the court for his committal hearing 
when suddenly a bloke jumped out of the crowd dressed like a journo, those who were gathered to see this piece of action taking place out the front of the court. This bloke jumped out from the crowd and shot Ray Bennett dead. Wow, Lee Harvey Oswald, isn't it? I was just going to say, the very thing it reminds me of is that vision where you see Ruby jump out in front of Oswald and shoot him, just like that. Um, He then was able to make his escape through the back of the court precinct. Someone had bent, conveniently, bent some tin off a wall, off a fence, so he was able to get through and disappear. So now we have, out of the six involved, four remaining? Yes, We have four remaining. Now what happens? The next episode that happens in this is that Brian Kane becomes a target because he's killed Ray Bennett. Now, one Friday, Brian was doing the inspection, if you like, is probably the right word, of the casinos over which he ran the protection racket. Mm. He got money from them to make sure that everything ran smoothly. He was in the Carlton, Brunswick area. And with his lady friend, he stopped off at a place called the Quarry Hotel, which is in Ligon Street in Brunswick, for an evening drink. It was probably around 10 o'clock. They were sitting just inside the front doors, according to reports. Near the jukebox, suddenly two blokes jumped through the door, shot him dead. Gee, that's very public, isn't it? It was. Couldn't have done that a bit more privately? Well, I don't think they cared too much. Yeah, well, all right. So that's now Les and his brother. Yep. So we've lost Ray Bennett, the organiser, Les Kane, the first of the Kane brothers, and now Brian Kane, which left three others. In the meantime, Ian Carroll had, as I mentioned earlier, been killed by Mad Dog Cox. So we were really down to two, Norman Lee and Laurie Prendergast. Right. So now... What happened to these blacks? Well, Laurie Prendergast just disappeared. One day in the mid-80s, he simply disappeared. His wife said she spoke to him from Brisbane and he was happy and going well, just had to get out of Melbourne for a while, but he's never been seen again. Now, I wonder if he disappeared by choice or disappeared by accident. Well, we'll never know because he's never been found again. I wonder if he took an alias and got out of there to save his life or he's underground. Could be either place. Would he still be alive today? Absolutely. Mm. Yeah, he'd have been a man probably in his, I would imagine, mid to late 20s at that time. So yeah, certainly oh, okay. that was 76. Okay. Uh, so he, w- oh. he could well still be around. If you're listening, Laurie, give us a call. <laughs> It's okay, really, no need to call. Just enjoy that quiet life and your money. Yeah. So that left one, Norman Chops Lee. Of steam or fried dim sim family fame. That's him. (laughs) Interestingly, and this is a kind of a sidebar to this story, there had been many suggestions by people over the years that the dim sim factory may have been used for purposes other than manufacturing dim sims. I find that hard to believe. (laughs) Leave your imagination to work out (laughs) what the other activities may have been. Well, they'd be well fed while they were there. <laughs> well, if you would eaten dim sims in Melbourne in the 70s. Maybe not. Yeah. Now, Norman Chops Lee was, if you leave aside the murders, the only man charged directly with anything to do with the robbery. Yeah. The police found out that he had spent $13,000 on renovations to his house and another $60,000 on new equipment for the factory, which seemed strange given that the factory hadn't been doing great business. He also turned up at a lawyer's office with $60,000 in a brown paper bag and asked him to invest it for a friend. The evidence was all circumstantial and Lee refused to cooperate with police. He took a punt and went to court and fought the charges. The magistrate discharged him after he 
found there was no evidence linking him with the great bookie robbery. Mm. So Norman Lee walked away. But you'd think given that near miss and still having a few bob, obviously, because he was throwing it around, he would give crime away. But no, he didn't. He became involved with two other blokes who pulled off a robbery in Port Melbourne that netted them $400,000. But they had their eyes on some big money that was coming into Melbourne Airport to the Ansett building, in fact. And they decided that they would rob this van that was taking a considerable amount of money to the airport. It's interesting, you know, when you think about it, why is there that need to do that then? Is it so instinctive that it's the rush of the job or is it just helping mates out or is it, of course, you know, someone asks you to step in, can you help with this one or is it just what they do? Yeah, it's just what they do and it's their way of mind and so many of them are brilliant men. In my years and years in the media, I met a few of them and if they turn their brilliance to good stuff... Good instead of evil. It, yeah, it, it, <laughs> they could do anything. They were brilliant people. Interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Let's just be the thrill, the challenge, oh, That's the part of it. That's part of it. Getting away with it, yeah. filling the cops, whatever it is. It is. That's part of it. So here he was, tied up with two other characters, heading to the airport this day to rob the Ansett van. Norman had been seen there previously, casing the joint, dressed in a dust coat, um, mm-hmm. with a clipboard, walking around, getting times of when things happen and when things arrived. So they were pretty well organised. What they didn't know was the coppers knew that they were going to try and do this robbery, Mm. pull this robbery off. So they'd watched every move, they'd tapped their phones, and they were there at the airport the day these characters drove up in their van. As the van uh, that they were in pulled up next to the van that had the money in it and they started to grab it, armed obviously with some high-powered weapons, the cops sprang. Swooped in. Well, they jumped out of their cars anyway and they headed for Norman and the other guy who were loading the money in the back of the van while one bloke was sitting in there ready to take off. So they threw the money in the back of the van, most of it. They jumped in after it. But the bloke who was driving was just a bit too keen. Oh, no. And he took off. Too fast. Uh, Yeah, and Norman and the other bloke ended up on the tarmac, on the road. Now, the special operations group were amongst the police who were there. They called on the other fellow, Barky, was his surname, and Norman, to drop their weapons. Barky didn't, and he was shot in the back and the shoulder. Norman started to put his weapon down, and the police thought he was going to give himself up, but he didn't. He raised his weapon again, and they shot him dead. Died where he fell. And beside him was his mask that he had on. He's had a rubber mask on and his 357 Magnum lying on the roadway beside him. What an awful way to go. He went for a while. I mean, that was 1992 when that happened. So he's had a good 15 plus years after. Full credit to the boys in blue on that one. Yep. And then there were none. Wow, so out of these six men who pulled off this great bookie robbery, a mastermind robbery, which we'll tell you why it's a mastermind in a second, because it truly is a mastermind robbery, every one of them died, well, except for the one who disappeared. We don't know about Laurie, but in a funny sort of a way, what happened after Norman's death was that it opened up a whole lot of answers about what happened at the great bookie robbery. Well, where did those answers come from? Because they're all dead and no one's talking. Yeah, they were all dead. But along the way, they had had involvement with other people. And one of those people was the lawyer for Norman Lee. Uh, Norman had a couple of incidents where he needed legal representation and he had a lawyer. Now, the lawyer had said nothing about what he knew of the great bookie robbery until after Norman's death. Well, you wouldn't, would you? No, Mm. because he might get upset. Apart from knowing how to handle a 357, he was a big man. Mm. But after Norman's death, his lawyer came forward and told what happened on the day of the great bookie robbery. Mm. So tell, how did they pull it off? Well, along the way, there'd been some things that hadn't been explained. For example, 
when Bennett was setting up the whole robbery, he took all of them, the other five, and he away on a camp. He took them out of town, away from their wives and girlfriends, and they had a training camp Mm. about how this was going to happen. He then got them into the actual club, the Victorian club, where the robbery took place, and they had a run-through. They had a practice in the actual place which was a club, was locked up on the weekend. They got in and there they were having a a practice run. How did they do it? Where did the money go? Mm. No one ever saw any of the money again, except perhaps for the 60 grand Mm. that Norman had in the brown paper bag. Yeah, because that van took off with the money. The van wasn't seen again. No one could ID it. No license plates. See ya. Yeah. So the lawyer told the story that when Raymond Bennett was setting up this robbery, he rented an office in the same building as the Victorian Club, 131 Queen Street oh, in Melbourne. How clever. So when the money went out of the Victorian Club, it didn't go downstairs in white bags and into the back of a van. It went upstairs. To his office. To his office and into a safe. Wow. Where it remained for many, many weeks, apparently. And who would think to look inside the premises because the money's gone? It explains how Bennett was able to get them in there to have a dry run because he had access to the building over the weekend. Mm. It explains how they were able to get that security door open because they'd fixed it from the other side so that it could be opened easily Mm. while they were in there. It was just brilliant, brilliant thinking. why the money was never found, really never went missing. No, after it all settled down a bit, the money was distributed amongst those involved. I wonder what was in the bags that went out. Don't know. No one ever knows. What a clever, clever plan. Yeah, and it explains just exactly how uh, the robbery was pulled off. Only shame is that, as you said from the start, they were all enemies in the end. Yep, no one killed in the 11 minutes of the robbery, and by the year 1992, all six who were involved were dead. Or missing. Now, whose grave have we got? Because we're grave tales. The grave is that of Norman Lee, of course, who was one of the major players in this story. It's in Northern Memorial Park, which is in Glenroy. In Melbourne. Yeah. And you know, every hardened crim, or in most cases, has got a family. Have a look at the headstone in our book. We'll go and have a visit. It says, Loving husband, father, and grandfather, always in our hearts and memories, simply the best. Yeah, and part of the six who were involved in the Great Bookery Robbery. And when you think about it, you know, it really was a great bookie robbery. If you have enjoyed today's episode of Great Tales, we'd really appreciate it if you could take a minute and give us a good rating. You have been listening to a story from Great Tales, the series, available on paperback, ebook, and select titles on audiobook, music by Kai Engels. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or on our website, Check out our YouTube channel as well, or put together your own group and come along on our Great Ocean Road tour.